Welcome to the Back Pain Podcast with Rob and Dave, the only show geared specifically to help educate you about your back pain. We talk to the experts to bust the myths, break down the science, and give you all the top tips for living pain-free. So if you're driving to work, tidy in the house, or even laid up at home in pain, we have something for everyone. Hello, friends and family, and welcome back to the Back Pain Podcast. Now, today is our first ever AMA, or Ask Me Anything, where we take your questions from listeners, from guests, from other people, and we answer them live on the show. Now, it's just me today for our first one. We've had a really great list of questions, so thank you to everyone who sent them in. So stay tuned to find out more about acupuncture mats, when do I need a scan, what are red flags, and when should I look out for ones which may indicate that my pain could be a bit more serious, and should I push through pain with exercises, and many more. In other news, are you enjoying this podcast? If so, then please share it with a friend or share it with your family member, or if you want to, share it with on your social media. Take a screenshot of an episode and post it on your Instagram. Remember to tag us at The Back Pain Podcast. It means the world to us, knowing that people are enjoying our content, and it keeps us motivated to continue, continue doing it. So thank you so much to everyone that shares it. Right, so we will start today with the first question that we've got here. I'll keep these anonymous, so thank you to everyone who sent them in. But question one says... I get benefit from using an acupuncture mat or an acupressure mat, but my osteopath has told me that it doesn't work and I should stop. Should I continue using it? So this is a really interesting question. It brings us back to the question of if I get benefit from a particular intervention or particular method or a particular treatment and the evidence said it doesn't work, should I continue to use it? And this is something which we get asked a lot, I get asked a lot, and that goes for any you know, a whole range of different interventions. Now, the answer I often give to my patients is is firstly ask them about that intervention. Is it something that's going to be potentially harmful to them? And then in that case, obviously, that's, there's no reason to do it. However, if it's something which isn't harmful and they get benefit from it, and the key there is what is that benefit? Is it a reduction in pain, which is fantastic? Is it an improvement in function? Again, also fantastic. Then that's often a good thing to do. Now, if that's at the expense of using some other potentially more evidence-based or more effective treatment, then again, that's not a good thing. But if you're using it and it improves your function, improves your mobility, and then allows you to do more exercise or more of the thing which we know is going to help you, then by all means use it. So that's kind of the approach I would take. But as I said, if you're using it at the expense of something which is likely to be helping you, then you know, I would be careful. And again, and if it's dangerous, again, I don't want to list off to any things, but if there are things which you know, potentially could be dangerous or harmful, or if they're increasing pain, but you think it's doing good, then I would pretty much steer steer clear of those. Second question we've got is, why did we start this podcast? And I like this question a lot because no one's actually asked us this before. So now the reason we started this podcast is because Dave and myself love chatting, you know, chewing the cud around back pain, musculoskeletal health, injuries. We love recommending treatments and exercise and things to patients. And this is kind of how we spent our weekends anyway. It was just sat around chatting about back pain and various other things. I know that's really quite sad. But we thought, why not record it? And there, sadly, there is a lot of information out there which is not quite what people should be doing for their back pain. There's a lot of false information out there. So we wanted to kind of bust some myths settle some truths and ultimately break down what is a hugely complex topic into a lot more simplistic language. Now, there are so many podcasts out there aimed at 
medical professionals, be them chiros, physios, osteos, doctors, whatever, all around back pain and intricacy and paper reviews. And they go in real, you know, a lot of detail, but that's not really appropriate for a lot of listeners or the people struggling with back pain. So that was what we wanted to do. We wanted to get those experts who are used to talking to other experts and then really break their language down and break their understanding down into much more simple explanatory frameworks, which patients can take away and patients can understand and actually act on. So you guys listening who are struggling with pain can actually take some steps to improve it. And also we love doing it. You know, this is something which for my own knowledge, I've learned more in the last 12 months than I have done in my previous eight, nine, 10 years of practice, just because it put me in situations when I've been forced to ask questions or I'm forced to challenge my own biases and my own beliefs. So for my own learning, this has been really an invaluable an invaluable uh, year of learning as well, which is fantastic. Okay, question number three. Um, tricky one. What are my top five red flags? Now, that question is a little bit hard to answer because there aren't, I don't have a favorite, you know, a red flag isn't a favorite thing that can pop up. I don't have a top one. And a red flag is, is going to be different for how a patient presents. So for those who aren't aware, a red flag is a sign that potentially your pain might be coming from something more serious or that it means further investigation or as we clinicians like to call it, it raises the index of suspicion that there's something else going on. It's not quite as straightforward or as simple as it seems on the surface. Now, there are a huge amount of red flags and I'm gonna list off a few, but I must give a caveat that just because you have something which I mentioned does not mean that it is something serious. It just means that it raises that index of suspicion or that likelihood of that possibility that it means that clinician has to stay a little bit more alert for it and may potentially consider a deeper line of questioning. It might consider a referral. It might consider some further tests somewhere further down the line. So the red flags which we hear get spoken about a lot are things such as a past history of cancer, um, things like night sweats, fevers, unexplained weight loss, pain down both legs, quadriquina type symptoms, which I know we've spoken to death on, on, you know, previous episodes because it's such an important topic. You things like bowel and bladder incontinence, difficulty passing urine, sexual dysfunction, numbness and tingling around the genitals or saddle area and a few others. For more information on that, please, please listen to our previous episode on cord requiner. But all of these, you know, there are lots of these red flags and they all have to be taken into account with that person in front of you. For example, if you take something like weight loss, you know, weight loss, Unexpected weight loss is, is a bit of a red flag, but if that person has just taken up marathon running or they've just gone on a crash diet and they have have eaten 500 calories a day for the last six weeks, then that weight loss can probably be explained. Likewise, something like night sweats. You know, something night sweats might always, a patient might have always suffered from night sweats and that's relatively normal from them. They might be of menopausal age or going through the menopause. And again, might also be suffering with night sweats and it might be completely unrelated as well. So everything has to be taken into, into context with the patient in front of you. But those signs just indicate that, you know, that clinician, whoever's in front of you, should be going a little bit deeper, asking around that topic, delving a little bit deeper just to uncover any risk or decrease the risk that it could be anything possibly more serious. And this is what clinicians are trained so well at doing. They're so well at going down these rabbit holes when someone says something completely off the cuff, like night sweats or fevers or another medical condition. This is when we are trained to go, okay, what could this indicate? And Although they might not ask you specifically about that, you know, they in their heads will be going through this kind of roundabout of could it be X, could it be Y, could it be Z? And that's why some some questions that people might ask you might not really sound that relevant, but in fact they are, and they're always asked with a purpose. People don't ask you questions willy-nilly just for the fun of it. Okay, question four. When would I consider a scan or a surgical referral for my pain? 
Now, this is, again, a really important question that we get asked a lot. And we've spoken on the podcast about, you know, why scanning potentially isn't always the best option straight away and why there are only a certain indicators that people do actually need a scan. So if we take scans to start with, scans are used to often rule out something rather than rule something in. So often the clinicians, when we refer someone for a scan, it means we're trying to tell you what it's not. So trying to rule out that it's something nasty or you know confirm that it is normal back pain. Whereas most patients think of when we're referring, referring for scans, it means that we're actually looking for what the cause of the pain is. So it's kind of a bit of a dichotomy there between the, the, the two ideologies. Now, the difficulty is that MRIs don't show pain. And that sounds confusing because a lot of people might have been diagnosed with an MRI and might have been told that they can see what the problem is. But an MRI is just a snapshot at one time, one place. It's a bit like taking a photograph at a wedding. You know, you can't really tell who the drunkest person is. You might have a bit of an idea, but it's, it's, it's hard to tell. It's just a snapshot. MRIs are the same. And the problem is, is that many people walking around without any pain at all have things that could potentially be blamed for some pain at some point. So if someone's had a few weeks of lower back pain, they then go for a scan, that back pain could have got better by itself. However, they might have something on, on the MRI which has been blamed or could be blamed on the pain. And then they can then go down this rabbit hole of you know, long-term pain. They go down the rabbit hole of potentially surgical interventions, which might not necessarily have been needed in the first place. And an example of that I have is a patient I saw a couple of months ago. I think I may have even spoken about it on the podcast before, so I do apologize if I'm boring everyone. So a lady came to see me and she had stepped off a curb and she had jarred her back. And this is a very common way that um, elderly people can get small fractures in the spine. And she had this jar in her back and she was sent by her GP for an x-ray. And she had never had any back pain before, a little bit of normal aching in her back, but never kind of severe back pain. So then GP sent for an x-ray to rule out what is called a compression fracture. And then it came back. She saw a different GP to translate the report. She had the report in front of her. And the GP said, oh, yes, uh, you've got some severe degenerative changes. So some severe arthritis in your spine. And she said, OK. She then came to see me. And I said, what happened? And she said, oh, well, I, I stumbled off a curb and it gave me arthritis. And I kind of unpacked this with her. And so she was under the impression that that curb, that step off that curb, that slip had given her this arthritis. And that was the cause of her back pain. Now, that arthrit those, those arthritic changes, those normal age-related changes in her spine had probably been there for 30, 40 years. You know, this lady was in her 80s. They'd been there for a long time and she'd never had any, have any back pain before. And when I highlighted that, she said, oh, okay, so, you know, where's the pain coming from? And she was under the impression that, you know, an x-ray would always show the pain when in fact it actually wouldn't. And, you know, if she wasn't so open to those changes or had had a really bad history with arthritis, maybe a family member had suffered for a long time with, with maybe a different type of arthritis or she had some, a lot of fears or negative beliefs around it, then, you know, that potentially could have spiraled out of control if someone hadn't have got a handle on it quite early. So she did some rehab, did some exercises, we did a little bit of manual therapy and within four to five weeks, she was completely pain-free. You know, that, that progression of that pain is likely, as we would expect, it got better. And she was completely fine. So that's, that is, is a positive story to come out of that. But it shows that that understanding and that misrepresentation of X-rays and MRIs can potentially cause some harm if it's not, if it's not, not, not reported correctly. But I must stress, that is not the fault of the actual X-ray. It's often the fault of the report. You know, these radiologists do a fantastic job at, at reporting everything that's seen on a scan but they're not looking at the patient in front of you. They're literally just describing what they're seeing. The GP then, or the GP or whoever then has to translate that to the patient. And often it's that translation where the breakdown gets lost. So if you are considering if you need a scan, then have this conversation with your, with your medical professional. They will discuss with you all the pros and the cons and the reasons why 
at this current time, you might not need one. Now that doesn't mean you don't need one in the future, but it just at this stage right now, it might not mean that you, you, you need one, but things are always open to change. Likewise, the questions about surgical referrals. Now I typically refer patients to surgeries after, after a trial of conservative management is, uh, it has failed. And by, by surgical referral, I just mean a surgical opinion. So that means speak, sitting down with an ortho or neurosurgeon and just having a chat through options. Now, those options don't mean going under the knife. That might mean a change in medication. It might mean an injection. It might mean some imaging if that, if that surgeon decides that that's necessary. So just because you've been referred to a surgeon doesn't necessarily mean you're having surgery. So that's a, a bit of a, a misnomer there that needs to be cleared up. Now, the, Tips I will often refer to people, and this is outside of red flags. Obviously, if people have got red flags, then they're going to be referred a lot, a lot sooner and for the other reasons I discussed on the previous question. But so often if it's the pain is really, really severe, and by that I mean it's really hindering your everything. So you can't work, you can't sleep, you can't get comfortable, you can't sit down, nothing removes the pain, then, then the quality of life is really, really low, then often these patients I'll, I'll refer pretty quickly. And often for an injection, something like that, just to reduce that pain. And it's a short-term intervention. It allows them to move. It allows them to get the mobility back. It allows them to walk. It allows them to do some exercise. It allows them to have some treatment. And then then that spir- upward spiral then works and everything then starts clicking into place just to kind of reduce that pain. Often if someone has sciatica really badly, then you know that is a, is a good place to go. Likewise, if someone has a lot of weakness um, in the legs and that's progressive weakness, it's getting worse, they've lost a lot of strength and often refer, refer for a surgical opinion. And the reason for that, it's really important to regain that strength quite quickly. So if there is a lot of weakness, and by that I mean true neurological weakness, not necessarily due to pain. So that's things like foot drop, you know, you can't lift up or point your toes properly, you can't walk on your tiptoes or your heels, then that for me often indicates a surgical referral and there's lots of other reasons as I said outside of these kind of red flag type symptoms often I will have a chat with one of the local surgeons I know very well actually Mr. Sundaram who's been on the podcast before I often bring him up with patient queries and we discuss the pros and cons for various interventions depending on the patient so if in doubt again like with a scan have a chat with your with your practitioner and go over those options most people working will know local local experts as well who they can refer to or they've got working relationships with and they will discuss all the pros and cons of a particular event in, of a particular intervention however i would always advocate for a good trial if it's possible a trial of conservative management first just to help improve that mobility and that strength even if you do end up having surgery if you've been doing exercises for the last five weeks it's only going to pay off kind of in the in the future so that's always something to remember Next question, I forgot what number we are on, number five or six, is should I push through pain? So this came in from our Facebook group, the Sciatica and Back Pain Support Group. Should I push through pain? Now we have answered this question before, did an entire episode dedicated to this. So should I push through pain when doing my exercises? Now what I like to say, see it as is do your exercise like going to the gym? Now exercises could be anything. So that could be walking, that could be lying on your back, doing some basic knees to chest. It could be doing some squats. It could be doing some lunges. It might be doing some deadlifts. You know, there's a huge variety. Exercise is a pretty general topic. Now, I advocate that exercise, the pain from exercise should be kept low. Now, that means that the exercise shouldn't be causing your pain whilst you're doing it or a flare up afterwards. And by low, I mean two, three out of 10. There's no, I can't think of a, a legitimate reason why you should be crying by doing exercises. This is a question I got asked last week. Someone said, I've been prescribed some exercises, but I'm in floods of tears because they hurt so much afterwards. Now, I would never advocate for that. That doesn't mean those exercises are wrong completely. It just means at that current time, you aren't quite prepared to do them. So in a few weeks, they might be perfect, but right now they're a little bit too aggravating. 
you know, the body sees that movement as a potential threat and it just needs to be changed. Now, with an exception to that, sometimes exercises can change the pain. And so what might be really quite sore for rep one might actually by rep five or six feel a lot better. Now, I still wouldn't mean this if it's really sore, then you carry on pushing through. But if an exercise is a little bit uncomfortable, whether that's a back bend or a slump or a deadlift, you might find that by doing a few of those, the pain changes. And if we have a positive influence on the pain, i.e. by doing five or six repetitions and it gets better, that is always a good sign. An example of that is something like the McKenzie exercises, which I know we've spoken about before. You find that with often repeated movements, whether they're extensions or toe touching or side bending, whatever it might be, then we have a positive change to the pain. And with those patients, I find that if they're doing those regularly, it's fantastic. So if you find that extension going backwards relieves your leg pain, do it every hour, do it every half an hour, just something to change that pain. And again, it's just morphing that pain, reducing it. It allows you to reduce some more exercises, allows you to, to do some more walking, it allows you to get on with your daily life. And it's just good for the mindset. You know, if you're in that negative place where it, everything hurts to do, just by taking 25% of the pain away is a really good idea. Okay, painkillers. Okay, we're gonna actually dedicate an entire episode with a, with a GP to what painkillers work, what they do and why they help. So I'm gonna skip over a, a little bit about painkillers. I'm not a prescribing practitioner, so it is not my area of expertise. However, I would always advocate if you are in pain, painkillers are are good. Painkiller, I don't like the term painkillers. Um, you know, pain doesn't get killed, it just gets modulated. So painkillers just change that input to the brain slightly. And the reason painkillers work is that they allow you to do movement. They're a short-term benefit just to reduce the pain to allow you to do a bit more movement. So people often are worried that painkillers are going to mask the pain or hide the pain. You're going to do more damage. I always advocate that take some painkillers. If you're lying on the bed, not taking painkillers because you don't want to do any more damage, taking painkillers to allow you to move is always going to be more beneficial. So see it as, as a way to modulate the pain to allow you to move more and do more exercise. That's the kind of the way I put it to, to patients. If in doubt about painkillers, go and have to a local, go and have a chat to your GP, have a chat to a pharmacist, and they'll give you more details on what painkillers you can and can't take. Okay, what can my partner do to help? What can my partner do to help me with my pain? So this is something I discuss a lot with friends and family when they come into the clinic, when a wife or a husband or a partner or a child has come with a family member, and I often speak to them as well about what they can do. Now the key thing here is helping that that partner, and I use partner as, a, as an umbrella term, helping that partner or family member understand what pain you're going through and what you can and can't do. And you get a lot of guilt trips and you get a lot of patients who are worried that their partner's gonna be picking up the slack or their partner's gonna have to do a lot more with the kids or help out with the housework or do some work for whatever it might be. And that's a really bad place to, to, really bad place to begin. I'd like to think that no partner would ever want someone to be struggling with pain. So having that open dialogue and opening those communication lines so they understand what you can and can't do for early doors is really, really important. If you would like some help with the children, if you'd like some help getting in out of the car, if you would like some help doing the shopping, have that conversation. So then you're not going to be feeling guilty when you're asking for help last minute. You're not, and then you're not going to feel guilty when they're then picking up the slack for you. You know, people will go, you know, <laughs> I think your partner should go out of the way to help you, especially if it's something which is causing pain. If they don't, then I do apologize. But I like to think that, that that is usually the case for people that's trying to help. Likewise, getting people to and from appointments, you know, can you help drive them? Can you help walk them there? Can you pick them up after an appointment when they've had a consultation? You know, having that conversation is so, so important. And the problems I see when pe people come and see me, husbands and wives or whatever the relationship and there's something not right, it's often it's just that breakdown in communication. So 
talk, talk, talk to each other is so vital. Often a, a therapist or a practitioner can show you some assisted stretches or some assisted massage or something like that, which might be useful as well. So have that chat with your with your chiropraxist and they can show you some techniques or some stretching exercises that may be beneficial. Asking for some time, some mindset, some time out, you know, just some peace of mind sometimes is really useful. So knowing that if you just step away from the, the kids and work and family life for five minutes and are stepping outside or going for a walk or you need that 10 minutes of headspace, just separating yourself from all those stressful situations can be beneficial too. So that's another thing I advocate that partners can recommend is you take control for a day and say you're allowed to go off for half a day and have a walk and have a de-stress day. So that's something which is also quite beneficial. So ask for that as well. Ask for those de-stress days and those half an hour windows and you might find that that's really quite useful. Okay, last question, I think we'll leave it at this one, is what app do I recommend or are there any apps I recommend for patients which are beneficial in pain? Okay, I have two that spring to mind straight away. The first one is an app called Stand Up and that is a free app, I think, from the App Store and you can pop in, download it from your from your phone. I've got an iPhone, it's available on that. I assume it's available on Android as well, but please, I'm sure there are alternatives available. So this is an app that reminds you to stand up, kind of does what it says on the tin. I advocate when people are in pain, standing up regularly every 20, 30 minutes, having a stretch, having a walk, having a move, especially in the, the today's society of Zoom calls and desk meetings for hours and hours on end. So moving is so, so important. Download the app called Stand Up and you can plug in your hourly schedules where you say, okay, I want you to remind me to stand up every 15 minutes, 20 minutes, half an hour, whatever it is. And it pings to your phone, your laptop, your watch, however you've got it connected. And it's just a simple reminder. It's very easy to sit there on Zoom for two hours and completely forget and then go to stand up and be in discomfort or in agony. So reminder to stand up and sit down is really useful. It's like a little nudge. Someone's elbowing you. Also goes back to the partner question. If you know you should be standing up and walking around a bit more, tell your partner. Another tip, make them elbow you when you've been sat on the sofa, make them elbow you every every advert break when you watch your television program to stand up and do a couple of exercises or, or do a couple of walking around the living room type maneuvers just to help trigger that memory and trigger that movement. Uh, the second app I often recommend is an app called Headspace. And I think we've recommended this app so many times that they should probably sponsor us, but Headspace app is a fantastic app for mindfulness and mindset. I advocate it for people who have no idea what meditation is or mindfulness is. This is the app for them. It's something they'd like to consider it. Equally, if you're very experienced at meditation and mindfulness, it's also beneficial as well. But it is an app where you can plug yourself in for three, five to 10 minutes and it takes you out of your headspace and it just clears your mind. It is a mindfulness journey. There's a free 10 day trial, which you can go down these and exercise every day. And it's just a little peace and quiet for 10 minutes. Now, the issue I have is I often fall asleep when I'm doing it. So I advocate doing it at <laughs> in the daytime rather than at nighttime. Otherwise people will just fall asleep and then that's not ideal. However, if you're struggling to get to sleep, that might also be beneficial. So using the app Headspace, and it's just a good way just to clear your mind. There are special programs on there as well for chronic pain. And once you've been through the 10-day 10, the 10 trial, then you'll find that actually um, it's a quite a reasonable cost a month. But there's lots of different programs on there from programs on there from performance to childcare to I think there might be ones on childbirth as well, right up to persistent pain and persistent back pain. So have a download, have a play, enjoy it. And if you are enjoying it, please let us know. So we love recommending things and we love hearing that patients have benefited from, benefited from them. So take a screenshot of you of you meditating, post it to your social media. Remember to tag us at The Back Pain Podcast and we will be, do our best to share it. So thank you everyone that does that on a regular basis. 
So that's it from today's and our first AMA, Ask Me Anything. Thank you to everyone that submitted the questions via our Facebook group and via our Instagram. As a reminder, our Facebook group is the Back Pain, uh, what is it called? Is the Sciatica and Back Pain Support Group. It's on Facebook. On there, we have lots of people. There's about four and a half thousand people all struggling, all need help. And there's lots of shared information, shared exercises, recommendations for local practitioners and so much more. So please head on over there, check it out. And if you yourself are looking for someone to help you, head on over to our brand new website at, no, not at, www.thebackpainpodcast.com. On there, we have a provider map where if you are struggling with pain and you're looking for someone who's been vetted and pre-approved by us to make sure that you're getting the best care possible, you can plug in your postcode or your address and you'll find someone local to you. Now, we're updating that weekly. So if there's not someone local to you, drop us a message and we will endeavor to find someone close to you and update the map with their location. As always, thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with a friend or on your social media. Remember to tag us at The Back Pain Pod or at The Back Pain Podcast on Instagram. So that's it from me. I hope you've enjoyed it. Take care, everyone, and have a wonderful rest of your day. Over and out.